Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. What did you tell me the other day about rubbing my forehead? Like, that it, I do it when I'm stressed or worried or... <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, like, I'm doing it right now. Yeah, it's one of your signs. Like, well, you used to when you drank, you would like push your hair back and like really kind of brush your hair away from your forehead. And now you just rub your forehead because there isn't any hair there to brush back. I guess. Yeah, sometimes I get accused of. Um... Having a receding hairline. <laughs> well, your hair's just longer now. I just meant like well, when it was growing out, you kind of had It's definitely thing. thinning. Like there's less of it, but I don't think it's receding. I've always had this huge forehead, monstrous <laughs> forehead that I can do things with, like yes. rub. Well, no, I just meant because your hair, and if people will see, you know, your pictures on the websites and stuff, your hair is long and it's straight, and you used to kind of have. A little bit of a... Of what, a, like bangs? A, like not the, a bang. Like 80s claw? <laughs> no. No, but maybe we should attach Maybe we a should picture. give me some bangs. That would be a good look. <laughs> no. Why don't you just go mullet? Like our our 14-year-old. But no, like the rubbing of the foot. I wonder if there's a... Your... I wonder if there's like a... Boy, it is soothing. I'm doing it right now. Yeah. It feels good. But I'm yeah, sure whenever I'm worried reliever. or stressed... I rub my forehead. <laughs> you do. Or like when you're in bed, relax, like trying to relax. Or sometimes if you've been thinking about things too much, you do this like sort of like pointer finger and thumb on the sides above your temple and kind of squeeze together. I'm sure it's like a tension reliever. I can always tell when I've been stressed because a few days later I end up with zits because <laughs> you can't just rub all those oils on your forehead without consequences. Is that true, do you think? No. I mean, it happens. No? Okay. No. That's not true. I made that up. I don't know. I don't notice a bunch of... Well, you don't rub your forehead. No, on you. And hopefully well, you wash. Bunch, but... Hopefully you wash your hands. I do once a week, whether I need it or not. <laughs> In these times of COVID. <laughs> In these times of COVID. So that's my, my you know, giveaway that I'm stressed or worried mm. about something. My dad had to tell. What was your dad's His, tell? My dad... So I don't know if uh, some of you people know, my dad was an alcoholic. My parents were divorced when I was two, uh, and my sister was almost nine when they they were divorced. So my dad, when he was stressed, or at the end of the day when he was trying to relax, yes, he would have beers sitting next to him, but his tell was he would take a match and tickle the inside of his forearm like in the underside of your elbow where your elbow bends, but that inside and along that really sensitive part, that would be his tell. With a match. With a match. So, because he worked he on cars. So and we always had yeah, so, matches handy probably. Yeah, and because he worked on cars and he had rough fingers and stuff. But um, he was always like real, like that sensitive light touch. Like, I think he's the one that like made my sister and I love to get like our ears and our neck and our back tickled because he would also like... You know, if we were sitting next to him, not in a gross way. No, no, I, but like he, yeah. yeah, he was a very he. I think like touch must have been one of his love languages. Interesting. Yeah. So that was his tell. Your tell is you start madly cleaning something. I've noticed <laughs> when I'm like stressed or or upset about something or yeah, just trying to lose yourself in the work of distract, distract. <laughs> it's it's gotten better probably because I've just harped on you for so long to the point where I feel guilty about it but um, often in our relationship you have packed a lot of stuff into Sunday like afternoon and evening and in my mind that's hey this is our one chance to relax as a family and and just kind of chill and do nothing and you do a lot on Sunday evenings it's I think it's better we yeah. often go for a walk now on Sunday evenings, whereas yeah. you used to... I remember lots of times where you would start a project like late in the day to the point where I'm like, there's no way she can get that done, you know, in the time before bed. But, but And I of, wonder if 
was it was it at least partially because Sunday nights when I was drinking were so bad, mm-hmm. whether I was, you know, drunk and obnoxious or just I was drinking and being sullen and off to myself and depressed and and creating an unpleasant mood around the house. Mm-hmm. Was that? Do you think that's one of the reasons why you got into a habit of doing stuff on Sundays? That could have been it a little bit, but also I think, I think too with like when we owned the bakery, um, you know, there were, we were open on Saturdays and Sundays was our only closed day. So even if you would be working or not working and then there would be projects going on on Saturdays, I still kind of had to manage the kids a little bit. So maybe I didn't get like an intimate small job that I wanted to get done or something that would require like glassware to be out. Um, so maybe I waited until they were all settled in on You're Sunday. You're presenting a very glamorous picture oh, of our glass- life. Well, An intimate small job? What, like scrubbing like, the inside of the dishwasher like you did yesterday? Yeah. Um, but like one of the China cabinets, like, cause we do have, I, I have a little fetish for dishes and we've inherited some dishes from, um, you know, sets of China and just dishes, little collectibles. And so we have, we have a couple built-ins in our, in our house and then we have an extra one. So I think because I wouldn't want them to touch those things that could be broken or the glass shelves that Who's are in them? there, the children. Oh, okay. So maybe I would wait or I didn't want you like thundering around and. So maybe that's what ah, I mean, Matt's like a small... drunk and depressed in the basement. I can clean the china in peace. Yeah. No, I mean, just like, you would have been like... Because you wouldn't understand why it would be in nice for me to not have dusty shelves inside I don't cabinet. understand why we have those plates that we never use. We use them. You're right. Thanksgiving. But, yeah. Sorry. Well, I you throw everything in, in the dishwasher, so that's one reason we don't use the nicer and older stuff that I have. But I don't I don't know. I guess maybe because also I kind of you know, wanted to kind of escape and not deal with your temperament. So if I was doing something, I could be left alone perhaps by you. Or sometimes you would want me to come and watch whatever it was that you were watching on and sit down there with you in our family room that was downstairs in our basement and just to sit and watch you watch something and drink would be depressing. So you'd rather have something to do. Yeah, or I would involve the kids because you didn't want to do anything on Sundays. So I think that was your your coping mechanism, not just with me, but with you know any stress in life. It was to to find a project that was going to take longer than the whatever the window of time was you had, and dive in. And I think that's very, very common. Um, a lot of people we talk to uh, have that as a coping mechanism. I, I, I brought it up primarily because my coping mechanism when I had stress or self-doubt or worries, mine was pretty simple and obvious when I was a drinker. I would drink. Mm-hmm. And everyone understands that. Any, everyone who has any knowledge of alcoholism or any experience with alcoholism understands that the drinker drinks when they get stressed or or they're they're in a position of beating themselves up about something. I mean, that's the only reason why uh well, hair of the dog to some extent, I guess. But you know, when when we are licking our wounds from something we've done over consuming, hair of the dog is you know, typically a reference to drinking when you've got a hangover to make the hangover go away. But we also drink to make the emotional hangover go away. And boy, I can't tell you how many times I felt terrible about the way I behaved when I drank on one night and by the next night I was drinking again. And it wasn't because I was ready to party again and woohoo, let's go have some more fun. It was something's got to make this terrible feeling go away. And I knew that alcohol would do it in the short term anyway. And so, you know, I've been thinking about that and I was thinking, well, what, what did Sherry do when she didn't feel good about herself or about me? And, and throwing yourself into a project is really the only thing that I can come up with. Would, would you say whether it was my antics that you were trying to avoid or my depression that you were trying to avoid or something that you were feeling about yourself? Is that, 
was that the go the unhealthy go to? I'm not saying that cleaning the china cabinet is unhealthy, but there are more healthy ways to deal with feelings like that that we'll get into in a little bit. Was that the main go to? Um, I think that the main go to is to ignore and distract, and then I would involve myself in something, and that's how I could ignore or distract. Like if I was over cleaning or reorganizing, so that. So whatever it was that was bothering you, whether it was something about me or something about yourself, you needed to find a way to ignore and distract. Yeah, I'm not a great multitasker. I can't, like you would always say, oh, I was thinking about something in the shower. I'm like, I think about showering when I'm in the shower. I think (laughs) about washing my body and making sure my conditioner is in for a certain amount. You know, So I don't think while I'm doing something. Maybe I'd get a little cleaner if I tried showering with your technique. But... I, I'm not, I can, I'm a person that can like just focus and maybe be present is what one might say, but it was a pushing it aside, pushing it out of my mind, not thinking about it and distracting. And so, then I could just focus on the task at hand. So really it's doing the same, you were doing the same thing I was doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, your technique was maybe less damaging to your mind, body and soul and the mind, body of soul, those around you. Um, Drinking alcohol is one of the worst ways to to just push it aside, but you were trying to push it aside as well. Mm-hmm. I think the difference between your pushing it aside and my pushing it aside is we didn't know where you're pushing it aside and trying to numb it with alcohol, but then your brain never shut off, so you would be thinking about some things, like if it was an argument or a topic that we had fought over. My brain never shut off unless I drank. Yeah, and but alcohol then sometimes like you off. might start thinking about it and then... You could kind of go either way. So if I was involved in something and out of your way, I made sure that I was doing something to stay out of your way. Speaking or we were speaking out of, of out of the way, this was kind of a long, winding road we've been on to try to get to our topic for today. Oh, which we have is, a point? Believe it or not, which is the, the human tendency to beat ourselves up to berate ourselves, to feel low self-confidence, to, to feel self-loathing. It's very, very common. Probably just, it's a part of everybody. It's part of the human experience. It's certainly something that both you and I have experienced. And I think it's important that we embrace the fact, or at least discuss the fact, that it's, it's common on both sides of an alcoholic relationship. When we talk to people that are in an alcoholic relationship and when we analyze our own alcoholic relationship, we're always trying to look at what is the drinker trying to drink away? What is this alcoholic? Why is this person drinking? What what trauma in some cases or what you know mental failing, emotional failing, what is this person trying to self-medicate? And I think it's super important to recognize that not only is the drinker trying to medicate this thing away, but the loved one has many of the same underlying issues, many of the same triggers, things that they don't feel good about themselves about, things that they're beating themselves up about. And when we're in active alcoholism, it's really easy to just focus on the drinker and say, oh, this person's clearly got problems. Now this person's over consumed. Now look at all the turmoil the overconsumption has created for the family and everyone can focus their attention on that. And that in and of itself is a way to distract from something that might otherwise be weighing on the loved one. So to to be more specific in our case, if you were mad at me because I stayed up too late and I made too much noise and I was an asshole and I called you names and Um, any of the many terrible things that I did, that was a severe enough pain point for you to focus on that and not think about the other things that might be causing you pain. And so, first of all, do you agree with that? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes good sense. So then when the alcohol got out of the way, got out of the relationship, and you and I were left not only with this broken relationship, this broken marriage, but we were also left with our own underlying realities 
again, we focus on, oh, you know, what made Matt drink? Uh, what's, what's the trauma in his background? What's the pain that's causing him to become an alcoholic? But you had a lot of things too. And with the alcohol out of the way, you didn't have the mess of my turmoil to deal with. Um, there was lots of resentments to deal with, but there was no new fires that you needed to put out. And so you were left with your own beating yourself up and your own lack of self-confidence. And so the point is, this happens to both of us, both you and me, but, but both sides of the street in an alcoholic relationship. So let's talk about what some of those triggers are, those things that make us beat ourselves up and feel bad about ourselves, feel like we're less than. Mm. One of them that rises to the top is parenting. Talk a little bit, Sherry, if you would, about how you feel about or feel or felt about your parenting and where that would make you feel feel bad about yourself. Well, there's no, I mean, there's many, many books on parenting. Sure. But there isn't like a book with all the answers and how to do it perfect because every person is unique. So every kid is different. And I think that some of my parenting doubts came in because you and I had a little bit of a different parenting style in some ways. I Yeah, I questioned your when you would lock the kids in the garage without oh, food for yeah, a week. Yeah, that's real funny. I wasn't yeah. sure that that mm -hmm. was yeah. mm -hmm. good yeah. parenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you read that in a book? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Oh, no, so... You think you're so clever. No, like, like for instance, you... You thought that if we had these I'm rubbing sets, my forehead. you're rubbing your forehead. You thought if we had these sets of rules, it would apply to all of the children. Okay, even in that sounds like even me. in varying ages and stages, because you were a person that liked routine, you liked consistency, and without surprises and disruption. I think because while you were drinking, you didn't need any more surprises. I mean, we were owning our own business. It fluctuated on the weather because it was a bakery. It was a retail thing. Like, you know, anything could go awry and amiss at any moment, mm -hmm. you know, like the refrigeration unit could break. And so, so you like things. Did. Yeah. <laughs> it often did. So you just like things more routine. So you're like, this is a set of rules. And yes, you can have house rules. But I think because I looked at them like, well, this is an emotional day for this child, so let's relax the rules a little bit. That caused tension, and with that tension, it also made me question, like, am I doing the wrong thing here? Um, every child is different. Every day is different. You need to parent within that day. So that kind of threw Parenting me. Parenting within that day, I like that. Kind of threw me for a loop. Felt like I wasn't reading them right, and that maybe, maybe me giving in and, uh, you know, and parenting with different, different styles and techniques for each kid and every day, maybe that was causing them all kinds of chaos. Who knows? I mean, they're not all full adults, and we don't know what kind of chaos it's done. So that was a lot of doubt. Um, also, you know, just, I don't know. I think, I think with our different parenting styles, like, you know, clean plate club versus listen to your tummy, you know, like, should we get a snack? Do you get, not get a snack? What? So those sort of doubts. And then also because sometimes you would just look at other parents and you would think, wow, their kids are really well behaved. What am I doing wrong? And I know I often joke with my friends now about, and coworkers about our two younger ones. I feel like our two younger kids have kind of totally different personalities than some, well, characteristics than the older two. The older two are more like, I feel like they're maybe more respectful or they don't want to, they don't question what we say as much. And when they do, it's really hard for them to go up against us as parents. The younger two, I feel like there's no filter. Like they don't like it. They don't agree with it. They're going to tell you. Well, and I wonder if that, me. if the older two having trouble uh, challenging us or pushing back is, uh, I mean, so this is something that I worry about and I'm triggered by and I beat myself up about. I wonder if it's directly related to my alcoholism because there were times when I was pretty darn unapproachable mm -hmm. and 
so now they just, you know, keep keep me at an arm's length in a lot of ways. It, make, it makes me feel terrible. Well, like in our call this morning that, you know, the, the codes of alcoholic, um, let's see, I think it's called um, grown children, adult children of alcoholics. Yeah. The, you know, keep... ACAs. Yeah. Adult like that kind of unspoken rule. And I've read books on that and I have some of those characteristics, but not all of them, but I think because my mom moved me out of that situation by divorcing my dad, but you're right. I think some of it is, and I think it's hard to kind of, and it makes me feel guilty and triggered because I think I really want them to see the new you and the new relationship we have in our new house hold and that whole new energy, but they're kind of moving away from that to become adults and independent and they're not seeing and feeling it as much. So that is a big trigger for me. Yeah. Lot, lots of guilt for both of us. Lots of self berating and, and worrying about the impact that we've had. But then I, I like it that our two younger ones seem like they can express themselves more openly. Mm-hmm. And I like that, you know, you're sober. I'm not in such a tense place that we can, you know, accept those challenges in their um, opinions and handle it better. We've got one that's a terrible hugger. I don't think we should call out specifically which one it is. I don't know why, but I feel like we should protect that. He peaked early. Okay. We've ruled out one. It's it's one of the three boys. But yeah, he can't hug and that worries me. I know it does. He was it such, like legit worries. As me. a child, as a younger kid, he was like the most outgoing and loving and open and just friendliest of the kids. So there is a guilt there that he's like turned inward and I'm like is, you know, yeah. Age, COVID, staying at home, insecure, in finding who his they were. His parents always want to hug him and he's just <laughs> grossed out by it. Yeah. But yeah, so parenting is definitely something that gives you and I lots of things to beat ourselves up about. I think everybody is a, that's a loving and caring about, parent. Yeah. Yeah. Like always feel like they're doing a terrible job. Yeah. And it's hard because it is, you're not just. You, you more so than, I don't feel like I'm doing a terrible job. Um, I question things. I feel like I've made mistakes, but I, but this weighs really heavy on you. And I think it's a maternal instinct thing. I mean, you, this was, when I said, Hey, Sherry, let's talk about the triggers, the things that make us beat ourselves up and feel self-conscious. This was the first thing that came out of your mouth. Yeah. Cause you are, you are responsible for putting an adult out there in the world. And I know there's accountability and mm-hmm. adult responsibility or you know, responsibilities you have for your own actions. But if you're not set up well, that could, that could be a terrible experience as an adult that you're, if you weren't set up well. Agreed. Agreed. So I 100% get very agreed. worried we about totally, that. We both know that. I know that now I didn't used to understand that. I understand now that all of who we are as adults is driven by our formative years and how we were nurtured as children. I totally get that. I just think it's interesting and it has to have to do with maternal instinct that even though you've been aware of that since the very beginning and you've done an outstanding job of protecting and nurturing our kids and I'm the one that's caused the most turmoil with my alcoholism you still feel more guilt and more stress and more self-doubt about this than I do. And maybe it's just because I'm a cold bastard. (laughs) But I think it's a maternal instinct thing because I don't think I'm unique in feeling like we've done a pretty good job preparing them. Well, maybe it was because the, the situation was where you were the drinker, you were the disconnected, and I was the protector, and I tried to overcompensate for that. And also, I think, because you wanted kids right from the beginning, and you wanted seven. I think we talked about that recently, and something how you wanted seven. And I didn't even know if I wanted kids, because I didn't didn't feel like I wanted to, like, if we were going to have kids, I wanted things a certain way. Like, I, I, I wanted basically what I didn't have growing up, like some parent that was always home with them, and, and then we worked it out, we figured it out, and... You would sometimes be home with them, and I would be at the bakery, and and vice versa. So we got it, so we had four. So I met you more than halfway with your seven-kid option. But I think maybe because I looked at the the job as a parent, as a job and a career, and it had a lot at stake, maybe I looked at it more seriously from the beginning. 
And maybe if you're that parent in the family that looks at it, like it's not just a, oh, let's have offspring because this is what, you know, this is what we do. Well, I don't think I took it that unseriously. No, I wouldn't say you didn't. But you liked being around kids, so you really wanted to have our own. I very much thought it would just come naturally. And I scoffed at you when you read books about parenting. I mean, I was a jerk. I thought, we're, we'll be fine. Um, and I, I feel like we were fine for the most part until they became teenagers. And now I'm completely lost and hopelessly panicked that we've screwed this all up. But even in that state, you still worry about it more than I do. And I don't know why I'm, I keep making that point. I guess it's not that important. But the point is that it, parenting is one of the things that triggers both of us to feel bad about ourselves. Not just me, the drinker, not just you, the codependent, but it triggers us both to feel bad about ourselves and beat ourselves up. Another thing that does that besides parenting is body image. And that's a, that's a 180. I'll give you a whiplash going from parenting to body (laughs) image. Maybe, maybe for us women, it's not a 180 because if you are the mother and you've had children, your body image changes after your body changes from having kids. So it's not so much of a 180. It's definitely common. It's definitely, I mean, look at the diet industry, the multi-billion dollar diet industry, you know, between um, diet routines and diet food plans. And I mean, every few years there's a new nutrition trend. There's a, if you want to know if something's bothering people, just follow the money. And it's quite obvious that body image is a huge component in the things that make people feel bad about themselves. Mm-hmm. What's your experience been with with it, Sherry? Well, I've never been what you would call totally slim. Um, and I have always enjoyed food. And I guess that's the reason I went to culinary school. Um, so, But I kind of felt comfortable and okay being a little bit bigger and, you know having some meat on my bones, being a stout Midwestern girl. Um, and I just remember a few times a like being stout Midwestern <laughs> girl, solid, solid, sturdy, yeah, sturdy. childbearing hips. <laughs> <laughs> but I, there's only been a few times where I felt really uncomfortable. And one time was like when I felt like I was like looking really good and I'm not going to get into the whole details, but I do have kind of broader shoulders. And I had good posture when I was younger. And somebody made, some guy made a comment, like, I looked like I was coming to beat somebody up. And I was like, well, you know, well, I guess you're going to be that person for opening your mouth and saying it. <laughs> so I think because I, like, stayed upright and I had, like, my shoulders back all the time. I think it's because I was younger and I had confidence, too. Um, and uh, I think... Like, I feel really comfortable around you, but I certainly haven't always felt that way. I think it's come with age and maturity, and I think it's also finding the right, avoiding some of the media now for me. That's kind of helped, but I definitely have have feelings of, of not being the ideal, you know, the ideal body shape for media purposes and... yeah staying away from what you know society's picture of perfection is is a really good idea and a really healthy idea mm-hmm. i think you know it's i can't tell you how heartwarming it is for me to hear you say that you're comfortable around me now and i know that when i was younger i can't blame this entirely on alcohol i can blame it partially on alcohol but i i made comments that i regret some of my biggest regrets are comments that I made to you, you know, Hey, you, why don't we do something together and start eating right? Or, you know, that, that's just code word for. Yeah. No matter how you I would try to say, no, to I just want to feel like I have more energy and feel better. Yeah. And, and I want to make sure that we live a long time. Cause your goal is to live to what? 150 over a hundred. Yeah. 150. Yeah. So let's just go all the way to 150. I think it was like 125, but and I'm like, I have no desire to live that long. Right. Um, so that no matter how you framed it, anytime you would talk about food, it would make me feel like, 
I needed to drop pounds because I think that's what our society has just pounded into women's brains. And I could, I mean, that could be a whole side podcast. So for a long time, I was a big part of the problem as it related to your body image issues. Because you were looking for answers for yourself that didn't that didn't always include stop drinking. You just thought, well, if I can continue to drink, yeah. but I eat better, I don't eat processed yeah. if we, foods. If, if we I get don't, in shape, Sherry, then, then everything then everything's going to be, be better. Yeah. yeah. So that, it was, that was always part of it. The food, were, there, you know. And in all honesty, I, I, it wasn't one of my go-to insults. But if I was drunk, there were times when I said awful things about the way you looked. I think you're really kind of beating yourself up a little bit there because I feel like you've always you've always had an attraction for me and you've always made me feel like I was beautiful um I don't think that I felt it well okay but I don't think it all came from I don't think it came from you as much as you're trying to paint a picture it was those comments about let's Let's eat healthier. Let's start playing tennis. Let's run together. I remember we tried running and you were like, when we lived in Chicago and you were like, that's all you can do. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not a runner. So we, then we tried rollerblading and I sucked at that. And so I just had to use you as the brake because I couldn't remember where the brake was on the rollerblade. Like I wanted to get a jog stroller and rollerblade behind it, but we didn't have any kids. So that didn't work. At the time. So all these things just put in my brain and my own perception and spin on it was you are not good the way you are. You're not healthy. You're not skinny. You're not in shape. You don't have the kind of energy that to keep up with me, you know. And from my side of the street, I cannot remember a time when I, until very recently, like very recently, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to lose 10 pounds. I, and, you know, so for me, it was more of a nagging back of the mind, always there kind of thing. And I would, you know, if I ate less during a certain day, I would feel like a success. And if I ate more during a certain day, I would feel like a failure. And that just, it's just one of those things that just gnaws at you and just so wears even at you. guys have that? Like... I don't know. I, I do. I mean, this guy does. I, I don't think I'm alone. I mean, this is something that guys never talk about. I mean, guys pat their beer belly and ha, 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 you know. But I, I, I imagine that I'm pretty normal, I think, in, in just, you know, I look at myself with my shirt off and say, gosh, if I could just get rid of those rolls on the side, I'd be good. And, you know, try as I may, I, I, I think this is how I'm supposed to be. I mean, I... In college, I gained a lot of weight. I gained the freshman 40. You're familiar with the freshman 40, right? Oh, is that supposed to be the freshman 15? Fat <laughs> Yeah. I got, yeah, I was an overachiever in <laughs> cheap beer in, and pizza. Yeah, I was going to say, overachiever in a lot, except for your grades, perhaps. But. Yeah. But, so, I lost that uh, 20 plus years ago, but I still, like, can't get that last 10 pounds and it, like I said, until very recently, that was the kind of thing that plagued me. It didn't, you know, it, it was just kind of always there making me feel bad about my decisions. And I think there are, there are triggers that make us feel bad about ourselves that are acute, that are in the moment. And, you know, like we make a mistake, it's a glaring mistake, and we beat ourselves up about it. And then there are these lingering, like it's always there. Just gnawing at the back yeah. of your I'm yeah. just not quite good enough. I mean, yeah. how many people feel I'm just not quite good enough about one or many things? Well, I remember it's been a few years, but you have a friend from high school that you ran into. Um, and they had, the, as a couple, they had lost. They were not huge to begin with by any means. Don't Don't get me wrong. But, you know, maybe they lost like 15 to 20 pounds and... He kind of looked like how he did in high school when you go back. And I remember after that, you were hot to trot because you thought, well, if he can get back into high school kind of shape, then I can too. And you can lose that, you know, lose the stomach squishy and, you know, your 
Sexual assault. I remember that that kind of plagued you, and and you didn't talk about it, but I could tell that it really made you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, because you had lost weight before you had seen him, and you had been like kind of keeping a shape. But again, I think sometimes our bodies are just built a certain way, and we're meant to hold a certain amount of weight. And yeah, and we have to just. And as you get older, you kind of learn that. And well, you, it's amazing. Even as I've tried to lose this last ten pounds for forever how little my weight fluctuates really like I'll do really good for a while and I I'll lose a pound yeah and then I'll be stressed and I'll be rubbing my forehead so much and I'll eat like crap and I'll gain like three pounds and I'm like oh my god I thought I for sure gained like 15 pounds over these last five days mm-hmm. but it, you, I do believe you find kind of a zone and that's where you're meant to be now can you go off the rails and and you know um, get out of your zone, sure. But now we're getting into the physiology of weight loss or gain, and I think we're way out of our Yeah, league. I think you just have to... But when we're talking about how we feel about our own bodies, mm-hmm. I think that's a legitimate conversation and that, that anyone can And comparing ourselves is so... So dangerous. Easy to do. And, and useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're comparing yourself to, like, a movie star or a supermodel, this person's job is to maintain that weight. That's that's the entirety of their job. So if if I stopped doing my, you know, 12 hours a day of work and only focused on my weight, I, I bet I could drop those 10 pounds. Yeah. But I've got these other, you know, stresses that are are going counter to maintaining my weight. If I was a supermodel, that just cracks me up with my huge forehead. If somebody wanted a huge foreheaded supermodel, I bet I could lose 10 pounds if all I did was think about my weight all day and drink water. Oh, it makes me Oh, you got a little snortle there. So I married an axe murderer. Remember the young brother? Heed. Heed. Heed on your huge pillow. Gonna cry yourself to sleep on your huge pillow. That's what you should say to me whenever I'm stressed. What are you gonna cry yourself to sleep on what are you, self-loathing and worrying about your bad body image and your terrible parenting? Why don't you cry yourself to sleep on your huge pillow? Oh, I wouldn't be that mean. I can just giggle and think about that kid with the big head and the big forehead. <laughs> Another one that made our list of triggers, things for us to beat ourselves up about, that both of us experience, both sides of the street, alcoholic or loved one of alcoholic, is work. Again, I don't think we're weird. I think this is pretty normal to have work-related stress. What's that? Not just stress, but uh, self-doubt and feeling like we're not not enough. Feeling like we're not enough. What are some experiences that you've had that have made you feel that way? Um. Well, I think I think for me, because I do have another a job besides work, you know, talking with you on this podcast. Um, you mean you have a paying job? <laughs> slightly. It's church, so there's no money in <laughs> church much. or teaching, right? <laughs> so I think it's like whether or not I'm reaching people or whether or not I'm going down the right road and the right path for, like, putting together... Because um, my job is director of children's ministry, so my job is to help cultivate their religious upbringing and I don't want to like step on the toes of what they're teaching at home and and yes it's through our church and so there is a collective belief and we kind of all have our you know same belief system but there are some things I'm sure that maybe parents don't want me to talk about versus what I grew up in the church talking about like I don't talk about any of that because it was fire and brimstone church that I went to and we talked about hell and sin and the blood of Jesus and (sighs) <sighs> scary song. So, like, I try to, like, make it a little more comfortable for kids. I don't bring any of that. So, like, weighing, like, my experience as a child and what I want, but making sure I don't step on the toes of what's being taught at home. And sometimes and you worry that you cross those lines. Yeah. Or... I, well, I worry and I wonder and I hope that I'm not crossing those lines. And I ho- I'm, you know, hoping that... I'm just giving them the best answers that I possibly can and finding the best curriculum. And it's even more exaggerated in COVID because we don't have Sunday school where I am using um, other 
volunteers to teach the kids. Yeah, and you're out on an island. Yeah. You don't, you don't get to look at any of the other Sunday school teachers' faces as you say things and see if they're cringing or not. Yes, yes. Or the kids, because it's video. It's virtual right now. Well, and that brings and up another love, point. I was just going to say, I love, and I love having other like other Sunday school leaders with the kids because they're putting their input so then the kids are learning a lot of different viewpoints but another thing about it being virtual is you know the numbers of participants and the numbers of views uh, when it's virtual are just naturally going to go down when it mm -hmm. comes to Sunday school I mean our our church attendance the number of people that are going to get out their computer after a week of being on zoom during COVID and do another video on Sunday morning is way lower than the number of people that would actually go and sit in the church pew, I feel. And it's even lower when it comes to now their kids after a week of virtual school. You expect them on Sunday mid-morning to do a Sunday school lesson? Well, and a lot of these kids are young, too, because our church starts them as we have a preschool class that starts at three. So three years of age. So I wouldn't put my kid in front of a computer to, you know... but. But so it's is that something that you have to grapple with? Because you know, yes. and I say to you all the time, I, like you just said, I wouldn't put my kid in front of a video again on Sunday. Like, let's get him outside. Let's get him doing something. It, but does that, is the reality that even though you know that that's what you're being told and what you're telling yourself, but do you still feel bad about like, is this oh, message yeah. reaching anyone? Yeah. And you yeah. feel like you're wasting time and... Yeah, and it, it is definitely cause for a few burnouts, too. Like, yeah. uh, is this just, like, yell? is this just screaming into the wind? Is anybody hearing? And and because we do load up the video on Friday morning, it gives families time to do it in their own time frame versus there. But then that just that lack of interaction. Yeah. And I, I don't get, no get questions from the kids. I don't get, you know, it's just, I don't even know if it's, because it's, we make our Sunday school fun. I think, and, you know, just that community within the kids and having them all grouped together and then break out into their age groups, it's just, I feel like, ugh, they're just sitting there with maybe their sibling if they have one watching Sunday School video and on their own and... Well, you know, I can relate. I am full of self-doubt when it comes to work. Uh, work is an external... Um, a point of external uh, value for me. It's it, I can you know if I'm not able to fill my own self-esteem cup, work is a place where I can get that filled up for me. I don't think that that's healthy. I think I need to be feeling good about what I'm doing, regardless of you know you can't ignore feedback. I'm not saying that, but um, I look for way more external validation from work than is healthy. Um, I often beat myself up if I've made a mistake or I don't think something I'm doing is working. Um, one of the things I do for work is coach high school soccer. And I have gotten to know through that a gentleman named Mike Freytag, who uh, he has won college national championships in soccer at Indiana University where you and I attended as he's won three he's won as a player he's won as an assistant coach and as a head coach and I think all the time about something he said to me once not just to me I was he was talking to a group of us and he said you know if we win the soccer game I feel like I am a genius and I have done so many good things and if we lose the soccer game I feel like I'm the dumbest son of a bitch there ever was to coach <laughs> and that's exactly how he said it and I think that applies not just to the coaching that I do, but to a lot of what I do. I mean, I can the swings that I can feel about myself if I do something and it resonates and I, the feedback is positive versus if I do something and the feedback is negative or there's no feedback or we lose the soccer game or whatever. I can just I can get to the point where I'm questioning my existence. Like, why am I even trying? Why am I doing this at all? And I don't think that's rare. Um, I, I wish I, and I'm working on being, I wish I could be just more confident in myself and say I'm doing the right thing. Um, I do the things I do because I enjoy them. At least I've gotten to that. At least I don't do things that I don't enjoy anymore, mm -hmm. which a lot of people do for work. But I wish I could just be content with that. And that's, 
it's hard. So I do a lot of beating myself up and I know I think some of your some of the programs we have through um our nonprofit Stigma, you do these writing groups and you don't know how it's going to turn out cuz you're work you've you're kind of doing something that's out on a limb, something that's a little bit different, something that's you know, um unique. And so when you're turnout isn't great or the one of the participants is is not having a good time or questioning what you're doing I'm sure that that leads to a lot of self-doubt but I think because you're doing something that's different and unique and and out there it's got to you know you've got to look at it like I'm doing something that a lot of people haven't done well it has some magic moments where I'm like, oh, that's why I do this. This person, you know, this this fifty something year old construction worker who has never expressed an emotion in his whole life just cried over something that he wrote. And I say, That's why I'm doing this. And it yeah, that but again, that's like an external validation, but it gives me a lot of drive for a long time. But you're right, there are other times where it's not going according to plan. <laughs> And uh, I'm just like, oh my God, why am I here doing this right now? It's hard. It's hard. But I think I think a lot of people feel that about... Because it's hard to put yourself out there and do something different and unique and against the grain. And then when you do get a great reaction, you know, of this person opening up and understanding, and then you have the negative side, you know, but... but you're doing it for, I know that you're going to say it's an external, but I think you're doing it for that person that opened up and, and is now experiencing this feeling that they've never been able to express. But that's not all selfish, I don't think. I think you're doing it for the betterment of of that person. Yeah. To get them on this path of exploration and discovery about themselves. Yeah, well, I do it because connecting with others feels really good. And when we... We're going to transition in a second here to talking about the solutions to that you and I have found to the beating ourselves up. And connecting with other people is right at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. The list of things that we feel bad about ourselves about and we beat ourselves up about and we have self-loathing about, that list goes on and on and on. I think, I think we've hit certainly three of the biggest for you and I, and I would venture to guess that those are probably three of the biggest, if not the three biggest in society, the, you know, parenting, body image and work related, you know, less than feelings and not good enough. Not, not, you know, I mean, we could go, we could talk about social media, but I don't really want to. Um, but social media is another place that makes us feel bad about ourselves. You know, it's a false mirror of judgments. It is. It is. But so let's let's talk about solutions that we found. Um, connection again, right right up at the top of the list. Being with other people that are in similar situations, and when we say connection, we're not talking about those conversations that you have that are just about sports or politics or you know what summer vacation you're going to take. We all need people that we can be totally honest with, and that's hard to find because. We are taught to put our best foot forward and smile and say we're fine even when we're dying inside. And finding a, a place, a group, a person. I read, I read not long ago, I can't remember, I think it was one of the previous Surgeon Generals. I'm rubbing my forehead again. I think it was one of the it's previous... It's also your... I have to think. I'm squeezing my yeah, brain. Squeezing the facts out like a tube of toothpaste. I think it was a previous Surgeon General who had written about how it was, in fact, it was Vivek Murthy, Murth, I can't remember. Vivek is his first name. But he writes about relationships a lot, and he was talking about how important it is for us to have one or two really close friendships. And people, when they think of friendships, they're like, they, they don't think they have enough self-worth or self-value if they don't have dozens of friends. We don't need dozens of friends. We don't need... 2,000 Facebook friends, that's ridiculous and useless. We need one or two people that will really hear our deep, dark secrets and empathize with them and share their deep, dark secrets back. 
That's what we need. And that connection is so important. Something that I didn't understand when I was a drinker, and I don't think you understood um, until recently either, how important those connections are. Well, and just a little note, as you, when you were drinking, you didn't want me to really have a deep, intimate connection, even with my family, because you were afraid it was going to leak out your secret. About my drinking. About the drinking Absolutely. or what was going on. It's a so, huge component of dealing with alcoholism. Yeah. Everything's got to be kept so secret. So I had people, but not really, really close people. Absolutely. One of the other things that I know you try to do to move past this self-loathing, self-beating ourselves up is to treat every day like a fresh start. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, it's something that's fairly new. Um, cause I am the kind of person that has a really good memory and I will hold on to things and I will add up your mistakes throughout the day. Normally, like if you're a kid and you've crossed my path one too many times, I like hold that and I will account, you know, I add up that account. So then when something really bad happens, then I will be like, oh, well, and then this, and then this, and then this. That painfully good memory that yeah. you have that we often talk about. Yeah. Yes. So... I've started to do a new good day and also about like just eating to be healthy and mindful of feeding my body good nutritious food because I want to feel good. So if I've had a day where I'm like, oh, I'm really craving something sugary and then I go get it, then I don't like beat myself up the next day or I don't really beat myself up. I'm like, I fed into a craving that's not the end of the world and... So if you if you treat it like every day is a fresh start, do you do you are you hard on yourself during the day that you're doing that? Or are you saying because you know that tomorrow's gonna be a fresh start, it lets you tomorrow's release gonna that. be a, yeah. You don't even beat yourself up in the moment? No. Why? I, because I've decided that if I'm really craving it and I give in to the temptation, let me just say, um, a cinnamon coffee cake seems to be like on my mind a lot lately and I don't know why with that little crispy top you know, the crunchy on the top. Um, so if I were to give in to that, I would be like, you know, I've been thinking about it for days and that's just what I'm craving and I'm going to enjoy it. And I'm going to go, yeah, it was loaded with like white flour and sugar, but I was just not going to be happy unless I had it. And it's a new day tomorrow and I'll wake up and I'll have satisfied that craving or later on in the day, if it was early on, like I have satisfied that craving and I can eat the good healthy food for me. Cause I do like good healthy food, but I also like some sweets, I guess, you know, so I kind of think of it like that. Or if, if I've had a run in with the kids where it's not been a good conversation, you know, and it's been kind of like, I, you know, I'm naggy in the evening. They're kind of disgruntled. I'm like, okay, tomorrow's a new day, and we're just going to start there. I don't, like, withhold love and affection for that child. Or for yourself, it sounds like. Yeah, so then I'm saying, tomorrow's just a fresh day. And I've even started saying that, like, to the kids. Okay, well, we'll just try again tomorrow. Did you come up with this yourself, or is this, I mean, we, you and I read a lot, spend a lot of time in this kind of self-help world. Did you get that from somebody else? Mm, I don't know where. I'm sure I... It's not a new concept, and I'm sure. Well, it's, it's not a new concept, just, but I love that you embrace it. I don't it and know where I've come important. up with it. Um, I think that I've heard well, you say a few. I've heard I... you say a couple of times. Okay, like you know, if we've. I say, think... I say, let's try again tomorrow. When I'm like rubbing my forehead and really pissed off about something. Yeah. I don't, so I don't I've really decided... mean it. I'm just like God. I'm just gonna try to push this down. Well, maybe that's unhealthily where... push this down <laughs> until tomorrow. You know, maybe that's where I've taken it to this level of like, okay, a healthy, it's a new a healthy day tomorrow. I, I didn't get everything done or I felt bad or if it was a crappy day and I just felt like I wanted to like be a little lazy and I had a list of things I wanted to do. Well, there's tomorrow. Well, it's, you know. Well, it's a really healthy way to go through life. I'm very, very impressed. And uh, it's something I'm going to have to work on for sure. Another thing that we want to to note when we talk about solutions to that you and I are trying to work on about beating ourselves up solutions that are different than just cleaning everything in sight or drinking away our problems since those solutions didn't work 
Um, we want to point people back to episode 77 of this podcast when we had the lovely and dear friend, Ms. Catherine Craig on, and she talked about, I think it was seven things mm -hmm. that we should do daily practices. And what's interesting about the list of seven that we talked about with Catherine is they're all things that we all know are good for us, but we also easily push those aside and let other things be higher on the priority list. Oh, so yeah. it's things like getting out in nature, exercising. Um, exercising not just for body image, but exercising for your brain and your circulation, your breath. and That's right. Because I can easily put off a walk to do a load of laundry, glamorous as that sounds. But I think... But I think it's all easy of to us do. do. If we've got these things on our on our to do list, right? Yeah. The, these uh, external gratification, check it off my list, feel accomplished kind of things on our list, and then we say, oh, but uh, I need to get out of nature and take a walk. That that'll get blown off because we know we can check off three more things off of our list if we just mm -hmm. keep our nose to the grindstone. But there's very little in life that's worse for us than just constantly keeping our nose to the grindstone. So I, I think if you haven't heard that episode, it's definitely worth a listen. We talk about uh, ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. Um, it, it's, it's a really, there's a lot of meat on the bone on that episode, but we end again with these these seven things, and I, I can't repeat them all immediately, but it's, and she's really it's good eating about right and exercise. And breathing. Breathe, like a and mindfulness to, practice. Yeah, and just how to do it a little bit until you get into a habit and a routine of it and making a part of your daily practice. All stuff that I bet every one of us acknowledges the importance of, but then ignores when the rubber meets the road and we're in the stresses of daily life. And I'm I'm really, really working hard to to say, I know that I really wanted to get X, Y, and Z done. They're not happening because I'm going to go for a run. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going for a run to lose that 10 pounds. I'm going for a run to get some fresh air in my lungs and to you know um, get that outside experience out in nature and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, again, episode 77, if you want to go back and review. And you alluded to this a minute ago, Sherry, but exercise, and I'll put food in the same category, eating good food, healthy food, and exercising for the right reason, I think, is one of our solutions to not feeling so good about ourselves. Getting away from that, you know, decades now of wanting to lose that last 10 pounds and saying, that's not why I exercise. I exercise because it's good for the old noggin. It's good for the thing that's under this forehead that I rub all the time. Mm -hmm. I need to for my brain to get out and exercise and push myself a little bit and just and get the cardio going. And same thing with with eating. Um, again, I you know I, this is something I've been working on for quite a while now, trying to listen to my body as far as what I need to eat. And I I totally respect what you said about your craving for. What was it? Crumb-covered cinnamon coffee cake? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, other times, I know you feel this way too, I can actually feel that I need more vegetables and that that needs to be what the next meal is focused on. And it's a great feeling. It's great to, like, crave cabbage. What a cool thing. I know You're turning your nose up. You're not a cabbage fan. I it's okay. Yeah. It's not my favorite vegetable. But do you, but I get, yeah. do you feel that? Do you feel like yes. I need more, you know, fruit in my diet? Is that something you feel? I don't, I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't probably been eating as clean as you have over the past couple of years with your amino acid. Yeah. I mean, that's a good diet point. One plan. Of the, one of the reasons that I eat the way I do is because what we've learned about recovery nutrition and there are foods that we can eat to help regenerate the neurotransmitters in our brains that are depleted by alcoholism. So one of the reasons that I try to eat the way I try to eat, and, and that's a lot of healthy, lean, pro, or not lean, pardon me, healthy, clean proteins. So from animal sources, so meats, and 
uh, it's good for my brain to eat that. Mm-hmm. Our, our brain, our brain cells are 70% fat. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that we would stay away from fat is just illogical when it comes to having that's a healthy how, brain. That's how you led most of your um, life in the late 90s to the mid Yeah, I've, 2000. I bought into the low fat the low diet fat, craze. Yeah, absolutely. Low fat, no fat craze. So, but I do get what you mean. Like every once in a while, I'm like, oh, yeah, a big salad just sounds really good. Of course, the kids are always like, oh, one of those big salads for dinner. They're, that's my boy. Well, always. we have one that loves salad. But they like salad the salad, but they just sometimes. feel like they're waiting for the other. But if that's part of it, you know, because it has protein and nuts or cheese in it, so it's a big dinner salad, you know, those sort of things like on a, and I definitely, I definitely have vegetables that I crave. I just think food and exercise are so important and we have so bastardized the way we look at them as them being directly related to the size of our genes and the number on a scale as opposed to what they actually do for our bodies on the inside. Mm -hmm. And if we can just Realign, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm far from perfect, but rather than worry about that last ten pounds, just think, you know, I'm going to eat the foods that's going to that are going to fuel my body to be at my potential, both brain and body. Then isn't that what it's all about? Exactly. Well, I think that goes into the point of prioritizing yourself, because oftentimes when we're dealing with stress and we have negative thoughts about ourselves, we often will then make bad choices and then that just leads us to feel more bad about ourselves. So if you kind of look at it like you're prioritizing yourself for exercise and getting out there walking, whether it's just because you've just had an argument with your spouse and you need to go on a walk and get that kind of finishing the cycle of stress to do that, um... And then you just kind of keep yourself in a healthy state. I think that that staves off some of the the negative self-talk because you have prioritized yourself. You're in a healthier place. You're making better choices. Because we can definitely fall into the pit of, I'm just going to eat ice cream for dinner and potato chips and things like that. Junk food. I already feel bad about myself. Let me make myself feel Yeah, and I think that myself. that just perpetuates that. It does. It does. And that was the hard I'll, one for me is to, to break away from that. And then that's kind of where I came up with that. Every day is a new day. If I didn't exercise one day, well, tomorrow I get another chance. And this stuff builds on itself. Just like the negative builds on itself, the positive does too. And I'm here to tell you that without sobriety, you and I wouldn't be having this discussion. Because when there's so much unnatural, chemically induced negativity in your life, the concept of taking a walk because it's good for your brain, it just doesn't even register. It that That's one of those, you know, you're from Venus, I'm from Mars kind of concepts. I'm trying to survive when you're, when you're battling active alcoholism, whether you're the loved one or the drinker, you, you know, you're, you're trying to survive day to day. And as the drinker, I was using alcohol in all these just negative ways. And this this is why I think it this goes this discussion goes far beyond alcoholism. Alcohol is a poison in any quantity. And if you're using it to cope as stress relief, even if you only have those two drinks after work, you know, it's it's not it's not a proper tool for stress management. And these other things on our list, they they can never of of solutions, they can never rise to the top. <laughs> if we're just continuing to push our stuff down with alcohol. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the place where you and I are on this list of solutions, like your daily fresh start and treating exercise and food the right way and all of the things on Catherine's list and finding connection. This isn't stuff that we just did overnight. Mm -mm. And while a lot of what we've read and researched has been tremendously helpful to us, it's not like just reading it once and then we're like, Oh, Sold. I'm in. It has to build. You have to start with one practice and that feels okay. And then you add something and that feels okay. And hopefully you begin to develop these routines that are healthy after years and years and years of unhealthy routines. So we don't want to give our listeners another thing to beat themselves up about. Uh, You know, Matt and Sherry talked about this stuff 
and I can't get there. It I takes a long time. You got to go slow. It's little baby steps. I didn't have any idea that I should have been doing this when you were drinking to deal with the stress and the coping mechanisms. And I didn't realize I was doing the pushing down Yeah. until I've been on this side of it. So that's what, you know, hopefully we're doing is we're hopefully fast forwarding a few years for our listeners to, to say that even if they are in a relationship that active alcoholism is still going on, they can still start making these small steps a little at a time and, and go moving forward to make themselves feel better and healthier and maybe inspire their partner. I wonder, Sherry, if true contentment, contentment and a lack of self-doubt ever happens because I'm feeling it right now. Sometimes when you and I finish a podcast episode, often one where we've had a really great guest, I just feel like I know as I hit the stop button, we hit that one out of the park. And this one's a great episode and it's going to get a lot of great feedback. And sometimes I feel like they're ho-hum. And that's how I feel about this one. And so even as we talk about not beating ourselves up and not having self-doubt, I am just filled with self-doubt about this recording we've just done. But, you know, we'll keep putting one foot in front of the other and, and let's see. Let me look at my notes. Maybe I'll go get some exercise or eat some healthy food or re-listen to Catherine's episode 77. And if all else fails, tomorrow is a fresh start. Exactly. I know we've got that. Thanks for talking about this stuff with me, Sherry. You're very welcome. And thanks for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.